Everything changes in today's marketplace. Technology, competition, staff, and even clients. Everyone is doing business differently than they once did. The challenge many face is keeping up with the change. Welcome to Thriving in Uncertainty with your host, Meredith Elliott Powell. By learning from the insights and expertise of guests like those you'll hear today, you can thrive in ways you never thought possible. Now, here is Meredith Elliott Powell. And welcome to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter how the marketplace changes and what this economy does. I'm Meredith Elliott Powell, your host, and before I introduce today's guest, here are three things you need to be paying attention to this week. Three things you need to be aware of as it relates to the growth of your business. Number one, reports are out and the U.S. economy is strong. It has produced better than expected performance in the first quarter. Number two is, however, we are having a bit of a global slowdown happening with Europe and China seeing as low as 1% growth. And lastly, number three, there is a new book out about legendary leadership expert, Bill Campbell. This is the coach who took both Google and Apple to their current success. Trillion dollar coach. I just got my copy in the mail the other day, and it is fantastic. It dives into Bill's powerful techniques for building teams that grow your organization and get results. But now on to our show and another book I want to talk about today. I am excited to welcome our guests, co-authors, Bill Treasurer and and Captain John Havlick. Bill is the founder and chief encouragement officer at Giant Leap Consulting, a courage building company, I love that, that exists to help people and organizations live more courageously. For over two decades, Bill has designed and delivered leadership and succession planning programs for experienced and emerging leaders for clients such as NASA, Accenture, CNN, the National Science Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Captain John Coach Havlick, U.S. Navy retired, is the CEO of JRH Consulting, offering individual and team consulting on building and leading high-performance teams. He is also the special advisor for Giant Leap Consulting. Together, they have authored a new book that I really want to talk about today, The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance, which focuses on humility as the fundamental leadership attribute and inspires us to answer the question, how will I use my leadership power? Welcome, gentlemen. Meredith, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Meredith. Well, I am excited to have you. Excited to have both of you. All right, so um, Bill lost the coin cost, and he is going to get the, uh, the first question. Uh, and God. I want to start off, just before we dive into the book, really just talking about leadership in um, general. I feel like leadership has always been important, but even more so today. I mean, would you agree with that, and why? Oh, sure. I think that leadership is highly important. I mean, one of the evidences of that is just a couple of years ago, the World Economic Forum did a survey, and it found that 86% of the respondents felt that the world is in a leadership crisis, and, which is interesting because that, that very same statistic corresponds to a different survey that was done 
that was looking at readiness in people's leadership pipeline associated with succession planning. So on the one hand, people feel like we need better and more courageous leaders. And on the other hand, we don't feel prepared for it. So right now, leadership is probably more important than it's ever been, and partly by the fury change that we're dealing with. Whenever there is change, you know, we face uncertainty, and this whole program is about thriving in uncertainty, um, and leadership is the key to being able to do that. So what, what are some things that you are seeing organizations do to try to solve this leadership crisis? Well, for, for one, I do think the importance of succession planning, um, meaning, you know, if you're in a management position and you have direct reports reporting to you, you, every single person needs to have a wing person next to them, somebody who can uh, be prepared to sort of fill their place if anything happened to them or if they're absent for whatever reason. In other words, you've got to be preparing and developing the next generation behind you so that you can eventually pass the baton. And I do see companies do this thoughtfully, and I see some companies not do it thoughtfully at all. Um, I've got a client that is, is doing a brilliant job of succession planning. They've been working on a succession plan for over a decade at the ownership level, which meant that you had to also prepare for the executive vice president level and the vice president level, et cetera. And the reason that they're so good at it is because the owner of the company, when he was 29 years old, his dad suddenly died and he was left with a multi-million dollar company that he wasn't prepared to lead. So he's, he's seen both sides of it. So I think that succession planning is one of the keys when you do identify the next generation coming behind you, your, your wingmen and wing, wing women, uh, and then you've got to de- develop them with really concentrated leadership development that is not just a one-day workshop, but a comprehensive program along with executive coaching and 360-degree feedback. There's a lot of things you can do to build the bench strength in your organization. So, John, you know, when I listen to, we talk about succession planning, boy, this is hot. I mean, Bill, I was just uh, talking with a credit union association the other day that was talking about the fact that over 65% of their CEOs are getting ready to retire within the next Mm. three years, 65%. Huge. And they're void of, really void of that next level of leadership. But, John, is this something that just large companies do, or how do smaller business owners plan for succession? Well, I, I think I, I came from the military, which had a huge success, uh, succession plan in place where, you know, you started with the commanding officer and then below them was the executive officer and then on down. And so there was always somebody there to, uh, to so to speak, step up if the, if the old man wasn't around or, or your boss wasn't around. So I grew up in that culture. Um, I think... Uh, it's important to have a plan, as Bill said, uh, that you identify it as soon as possible because uh, if you grow and you haven't thought about it, then all of a sudden if someone, someone a key position uh, goes away or a key person goes away, you know, who takes over? How do you do that smoothly and effectively so there's no interruption of, of business or the organization? Yeah, it is, it is, it is definitely um, a challenge. Now, you two are both devoted to um, leadership, and I'd like to get before we dive into talking about uh, your book and this um, 
kind of different spin you have on what it takes to be a leader today. Tell me a little bit about your um, backstory. And I want to hear this from both of you, because we know there's two sides to every story, and then there's um, the actual truth. So, Bill, why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you two started working together? Well, John and I go way back. We go back almost 35 years, uh, back to 1980, when I uh, became a diver on the swimming and diving program at West Virginia University, and John was an assistant coach, and he had also been a member of the team. Uh, and for one year, we overlapped. So he was still an assistant coach, and I was just coming in as a freshman. And divers, I was a springboard diver. We get a lot of grief. The, the swimmers are always <laughs> giving us grief that we, you know, we, our job isn't as hard, and it's not as exhausting, and it's not as, as physical, and we're wimpy, and all, you know, so they're always giving us grief. And John, of course, did give me grief. Um, but he was also good to me. He was also nice to me. And, um, and he treated me like just another member of the team instead of, you know, some sort of adjunct on the team. And I appreciated that about him. And then uh, he went off, and, and as he'll tell you, you know, he became a Navy SEAL, and then I got interested in leadership development, and I did some unusual things in my background as well. But fast forward 35 years later, 30 years later, we're at an alumni event, and I bring my kids, and I tell my boys, I'm like, when you meet this guy, you make sure you thank him for his service. And, and know that he's a Navy SEAL. And now I hadn't seen John. I, I didn't even know if he'd remember me, but everybody on the team knew John because he was sort of like, he was the hero that went off and became a SEAL. So when I saw him, I, I looked at him and he looked at me and he said, Treasurer, I want to talk to you. And, and I, was, I was flabbergasted because I was really wanting to talk to him. Uh, and we had a conversation over breakfast and it turned out he was interested in some of the things that I am in terms of leadership development and maybe speaking to corporate groups and such. And we rekindled our relationship. As we did, we started forwarding emails back and forth and having brief conversations about leadership. And inevitably, it would be about a leader who did something to decimate their entire career and reputation. And John and I became so frustrated with that that we thought, what the hell is going on? And we decided to come together and write this book, The Leadership Killer. Uh, which I'm sure we'll tell you about, but but that's my version of the story, and I, and uh, l- maybe John's got a got some things that, to add to that. No, it's pretty accurate. Uh, I did, it, I did, I, I was nice to the divers just because they were part of the team and they scored points and helped us win. So, but it was always usually just the swimmers who carried the load. So, uh, but uh, I I did value the the existence of the divers and always did, especially when I got into coaching. And uh, so I appreciated what they did. Um, and it had been a long time, thirty, almost 35 years since Bill and I did reconnect. And, and, I, and I was very interested in what he was doing and uh, curious because uh, as I transitioned out of military, I was looking at different avenues, uh, different professions to get into. And the motivational speaking, leadership side of the house, uh, after 31 years in the Navy and the SEALs, I, I said, I, I think I can offer a little maybe something to some folks out there on some of the things I did, right and wrong. And uh, so we talked, like Bill said, we talked. And, and I did some speaking engagements for, in support of some uh, workshops he did and seemed to go over pretty well. And, but we did we did we'd talk all the time. You know, we send each other uh, texts or emails about just leaders who do stupid things and clearly, you know, why did they do it? And, you know, Bill, uh, very grateful to him for reaching out and 
just asking if I would co-author the book for, you know, his fifth book. And I absolutely, I never thought I'd do it. And, and I'm glad I did. So that's, that's my side story. So, Bill, here you are, and you've partnered with this um, uh, Navy SEAL, and you two can write a book on leadership. Um, what a broad topic. You can write on so many things. And you come up with The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance. Tell us how that came about and why razor-like focus on this particular topic. You know, as we started sharing these disappointing stories about leadership, um, you know, John and I looked at it from multiple angles. And we, you know, is it incompetence? Uh, not always. Sometimes it's not. Um, is it intimidation? You know, sure, some of those leaders are intimidating, but it's not always the case. Um, is it, uh, you know, what, what other factor is it? But one thing that it almost always came down to was arrogance. It was an inflated ego, an ego that started to believe as a leader that it was more special than the other people around them, which is the seduction of leadership. You know, we, we sort of deify this idea of leadership, um, but leadership, as much as it's done great things in the world and it moves the world and it's entirely necessary in the world, it's also brought us genocide, right? Like there's, there's good leadership and then there's the use of leadership for the wrong thing. And what we found in the stories of uh, the leaders who had sort of decimated their own reputation, done unethical things, taken advantage of their organizations or people within it, um, and we saw the whole Harvey Weinstein moment, you know, blow up into the Me Too movement, that uh, the one characteristic that it almost always came back to was arrogance. And John, in our conversations, he had used this word a couple of times. He's like, yeah, it's just a lot of hubris there. And, it, and I had heard him say it a few times, and, I, and that got me curious about the word hubris. And then I researched the word hubris, and it's an old Greek word. And it turns out it's been associated with leadership right from the get-go of leadership. And it's associated with the um, is dangerous overconfidence is the most common way of thinking of this idea of hubris. It's like, we want a leader to be confident, but there's a point at which that confidence becomes overconfident, and then they're dangerous to themselves and dangerous to the people that they're leading. So we keyed in on this topic of hubris, which is really what the, the book is about, is the dangers of hubris that all of us are tempted towards when you're in a leadership role, and then that heightened the importance of humility, because it's the counteragent that humility is like the antidote to hubris. And so those two concepts are the keys that we highlight uh, in the book is about the dangers of hubris and the importance of humility. You know, as I tie this back to this idea of, um, of uncertainty, I mean, what's so attracted me to the book and feeling like you were such the perfect fit for this show is this idea that I do think, because I was wondering, where is the tipping point, right? Where do we go from humility and wanting to serve, which is probably a lot of the reasons that where people start with leadership. And then you get, you know, as you say, it's seductive. You get caught in the, um, you get caught in the power of it. And I think when the, when the marketplace, when the competition, when the, everything around us is uncertain, um, leaders can tend to take more power and get more seduced by those things. Would you agree? And did you find some of those things um, in the book? Are there certain times when people seem to tip over? Leaders seem to move from humility to hubris? 
You know, my my thought is, so I came across the, the very first story ever put into the written word. It, it's not the Bible. It actually precedes the Bible, Bible by, you know, thousands of years. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and in the story of Gilgamesh, they talk about um, the right of Primus Noctus, uh, and that Gilgamesh actually had the right to sleep with all the virgins. Why? Because he was the king. So right from the first story of leadership, we have abhorrent leadership, right? We have the unethical use of leadership right from the genesis of the idea of leadership. So I think it's kind of, it's the temptation. I don't know that that it's heightened um, in uncertain time, except for a very specific way that I'll share with you in just a second. Um, But I do think it's the danger. I think a lot of leaders, like you suggest, start out with, with good intention, they're going to put into service their expertise or wisdom or contribution for the good of others. And then as they get into leadership and they, they start getting a certain latitude, they can come in late to the meeting. They're allowed to interrupt people. Nobody calls them on it. They start believing their own marketing material and people start treating them special and they start believing that they're special. And then they start to shift their focus away from people that they're leading and onto themselves. And that's the misuse of power. And when that happens, it becomes really dangerous. As it relates to uncertainty, here's, how, here's the very specific way I think that it does connect to uncertainty, is that in uncertain, fearful times, we tend to want strength in leadership because we're feeling fearful. And so we want the portrayal of confidence. We want a leader who looks like they're a strong person whether it be a woman or a man, we want, let's just call it the strongman leader because it gives us a sense of certainty in uncertainty. We start following that person's certainty, oftentimes to the danger of ourself. Uh, but, I, but I think that that's, the, that's the, uh, the specific instance of hubris as it relates to uncertainty is we start looking for the answer in the confident person who may just be full of bluster. Who, who then who then truly begins to um, to become full of themselves because everybody else is looking for uh, for the answer. I love the fact that you have um, you've tipped us up with a good teaser because we're getting ready to go to uh, we're getting ready to go to break. And when we come back, I want to dive into a little bit more this idea of uncertainty. But we're going to dive deep into the leadership killer and really talk about what you can do to be a good leader, because I don't care what industry you're in, what business you're in, the greatest competitive advantage you have right now is in your ability to lead your organization. So we'll take a minute, go to a commercial break, and we'll be right back with our guests. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to learn the business strategies you need to succeed no matter what this economy does? Are you interested in learning how the top organizations and how successful leaders are making change work for their companies and using uncertainty as their greatest competitive advantage? Then join the thousands of business owners, sales professionals, and entrepreneurs who have found the answers. Business growth expert Meredith Elliott Powell, author of Thrive, Strategies for Success in Uncertainty offers powerful keynotes, workshops, and training courses for organizations and leaders of sales professionals looking to take their companies to the next level. 
voted a top 15 business growth expert to watch and top 40 motivational speaker. Meredith coaches executives, trains next level leaders, and builds sales teams in her innovative three-step proven system to thrive in uncertainty. To learn more, go to valuespeaker.com. To speak with Meredith directly, book Meredith to speak and learn more about her training programs. That's valuespeaker.com. Visit today. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Thriving in Uncertainty. If you have a question or comment about our program, Meredith would love to hear from you. Her email address is M-E-R-E at valuespeaker.com. Again, that's M-E-R-E at valuespeaker.com. Now back to Thriving in Uncertainty. Welcome back to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter what this marketplace does. And we are back here with our guests, Bill Treasurer and Captain John Havlick, talking about the leadership killer. So, John, why don't you kick us off um, in this segment and talk about um, some of the examples of hubristic leadership? Well, I think the biggest one... I saw I saw it a lot in in the military, and uh, unfortunately, it, was, it, it happens in any any profession. And there are great leaders, but I did see a few examples. And one of the, it, the examples we talked about in the book is the one of General David Petraeus, where he uh, he became director of the CIA. He had a distinct he retired as a four star general and uh, sold uh, basically admitted giving classified information to his biographer as he was having an affair with her, you know. And so that's kind of the classic one that we highlight. And there's a few others in there, but uh, um, it's almost on a daily basis or now, or at least on a weekly basis where I read an article of somebody in the military getting relieved of command. I just saw it uh, the commander down at Guantanamo. Guantanamo was a relief for loss of confidence and, they don't get into specifics, but um, usually it's for one of two different reasons. And hubris is usually the main factor in why it, why it goes. So those are some examples that I that I uh, I've seen, and uh, can't talk about some stuff, but uh, that's kind of what I've seen in the past. You know, and I'll uh, I'll chime in too, and and say that okay. w- when we look at it, it's in every industry that involves a leader. It, it, whether it's military or political or corporate or sports or religion, even our religious leaders have let us down in, in uh, striking unethical ways. 
And uh, so it really, it runs the gamut. It, I, I think it's, it's not so much the, the purview, like whether it's, uh, you know, sports or politics or corporate or religion or whatever, military, but, but it's almost just the idea that we're all susceptible to this temptation. You know, what, as we say in the book, it's so important to ask yourself, what will I do with my power? Because power, it's almost like the, the Lord of the Rings, right? Like Gollum gets that ring and it's like, oh, my precious. It's like, what do we do? Like power can really distort a person's behavior. You get, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who's on the shorter side, right? I'm five foot seven and a half. And uh, boy, you give, give, a, give a short guy a little power and watch the Napoleon complex take over. Um, so, you know, but there are plenty of examples. The um, Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos is an example, right? Here's a brilliant person who, um, you know, works to market this company, Theranos, and purports what this innovation can do to take a person's blood and do amazing diagnostics almost instantly, something that had never been done before, uh, valued over a billion dollars, very quickly up to valuing over $9 billion. And it turns out that the whole thing was a giant fraud. She was lying to people's faces, the point that she is now prohibited from ever holding a directorship uh, level position in an SEC company. The FBI has uh, looked at her. She's been indicted. And she, when they, when you look and review her depositions that she gave last summer, she says the words, I don't know, literally over 600 times. A person who, if you watch old videos of her, she certainly seemed like she knows. She came off as a big know-it-all, but not when she was in this legal deposition where she had, she didn't know anything for 600 times. So it's, that's just an example. Uh, Carlos Goshen is another one who was the chairman of the board of Nissan Motor Companies, who was pushed out of the company for fraudulent behavior, who was put in a Japanese internment jail, basically, um, which he's just gotten out of uh, while his, uh, you know, uh, lawsuit moves through the courts. Um, the head of Uber, Travis Kalnick, was pushed out of the company that he founded uh, for for really unquestionable, you know, questionable behavior. A lot of it had to do with sexual harassment um, charges and such, pushed out of his own company, and now they're having to sort of clean up the bro culture mess over there. So there's plenty of striking examples that we have in the book. But, but in those examples, we don't want the reader to lose sight. Like if we put too many of the big examples, we don't want the reader to let themselves off the hook and say, well, I'm nothing like that. But in some small way, we're, we have the potential to be like that, me, moving towards the misuse of our own power. Well, but that, but that begs the question, and what I'm really sitting here curious about is, so here I am leading and, you know, leading an organization. And in the marketplace that we're in today, where competition is crazy constantly, technology changes everything, you know, the government and policy and so much impacts regulation, how we do business. Really, the one thing we have as business owners, as leaders in company is our ability to be effective and our ability to lead people. So, how do I know, how could I recognize if I have self-awareness, what am I looking for in my own behavior as I start to, to unfortunately maybe become a hubristic leader? Mm. Well, one of the things we talk about in the book is something that Patrick Decker told us. He's the CEO of a company called Xylem. It's a billion-dollar company in the water industry. Uh, their tagline is, we saw water. 
And, and he says that he looks for, when he promotes somebody, do they grow? I mean, do they get interested? Do they talk to people above them? Do they seek the input of the people below them? Do they try to learn as much as they can about this new position? Do they grow or do they swell? Do they start getting, you know, get concerned about the size of their office space and the parking spot that they have? And they keep pestering you about their next bonus. And do they, uh, do they fixate on how many people they have reporting to them and they want somebody else's fiefdom under theirs? Do they grow or swell? And I think that when a lead, it's harder to do by yourself. It's easier to see it in others that you might be promoting. But one way you can see it in yourself is if you're open to going through a 360-degree feedback where you get unfiltered data about yourself to be able to see how you're showing up to other people as a leader. So, so one thing, uh, to, to stay conscious as a leader and get input about yourself that's not based on your own viewpoint, but based on the viewpoints of others. And Meredith, I, I, you think, know, I think that is... Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, I think... The big thing for me, at least from my experience, you know, 31 years in the SEALs is, uh, you know, the guys, the other SEALs will call you out when your head starts swelling, you know, and that was, that was the beauty of being a small group, close-knit uh, band of brothers, so to speak, you know, when uh, you start getting cocky and think you know it all. The guys are always there to kind of put you back in place, and that continued throughout your career, especially like when I became a commanding officer, um, I always had my senior enlisted was very important and always there to kind of rein me in if if I started to get out of control. So, do you give somebody permission, uh, you know, to do that? I mean, you know, you. Um, I mean, I think the thing about three sixties that's always amazing is even if you are a great leader, you're um, an effective um, leader. You uh, you still can find out a great deal from from other people giving you feedback about your impact and, you know, and, and how you come off. So do you give people permission um, to do that? I mean, Bill, what are your thoughts on that? My thought is that, it, that you, you ought to as an expectation. Uh, even So if you're a leader and you've got people underneath you, one of the things that you ought to do right when somebody comes under your leadership is to say, listen, I'm not just giving you my permission to push back on me. I'm giving you my expectation to, to push back on me. Uh, and at the end of the year, I'm going to evaluate partly on how courageous you were in dealing with me. Then you've got to give them some coaching on how to do that. You know, don't do it in front of the, the rest of the, pe- the team. Uh, don't do it when you see me come out of the board meeting or go into the board meeting. Don't do it when you know i got 50 things on my to-do list. But here's how to approach me when you've got to give me feedback that runs counter to what you think I want. Uh, so I'd say create the expectation. Like, nobody should be surrounded with suck-ups and sycophants and yes people. It's so dangerous to your own leadership to, to surround yourself with people who only tell you pleasing things to your ears. That, that makes for bad lead, leadership very quickly. So to set the expectation with your people... Not only giving them permission, but saying, you, you are going to be evaluated whether or not you do this. So, yeah, it's a really good point, uh, Meredith. Well, you know, I think ways. that... Um... Oh, go ahead, John. I think, yeah, I think, Meredith, it works both ways where, you know, it, you give permission to uh, people to call you out. And you always, and like Bill said, you never want to do it publicly because that discredits everything and, and just makes for disorganization. But I think... 
you have to be, uh, as a leader, you can't call your people out publicly either. You know, if you're, if you're going to say something negative or chastise, it's best done in private because nobody wants to get called out for, you know, uh, inferior performance in front of their peers. That's, that doesn't do anyone any good and doesn't give you any credibility as a leader to the other folks that, uh, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to live in fear because if I don't, this guy's going to call me out. So I think it works both ways. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I, think that's a, I think that's a great point. I, I have a lot more questions um, uh, around this because I think that the more that we can do to be really effective at how we lead organizations, and a big piece of that is, is getting positive and challenging from the people from the people that we're leading but um, but I, I want to just just because um, you you have both brought up a word that we do not see in our vocabulary that often um, hubris I want to make sure that um, our listeners we've given some examples of some people who have definitely um, let hubris overtake them but what are some examples of some leaders that have stayed in humility, that, that really should be um, role models and what was so effective uh, about them? Mm. Good question. For, for me, <clears throat> I, my experience ha- has been that, my experience, right? Like, I, I couldn't easily point to somebody necessarily on the world stage. There's a couple of coaches that, uh, that I admire for how they carried themselves um, but I have a guy that, that uh, I, I worked for. His name was Heinz Brannon. And prior to working for, for Heinz, you know, I had done my thesis on leadership. I had worked with a lot of uh, leaders and around a lot of leaders. And, and everybody sort of fell short. Now, it could be that I was still ide- idealistic. I was fresh out of graduate school, and I had a, a lot of idealism about what a leader should and shouldn't be. And nobody lived up to that expectation. And then I worked with Heinz. And, and one thing I can tell you, and this is a good way a person could sort of check on themselves, is that his I to we ratio was in right proportion. He wasn't all okay. about I, I, I. There's, there's one guy that I worked for one uh, time that they don't know, but behind his back, they used to call him Tommy I, because everything came back to him. He said I so much. His name was Tommy, and they called him Tommy I behind his back. Heinz was, was just the opposite. It was always about we and us and what we are going to do together, and it wasn't all about himself. Now, here's a guy that was really smart. He had uh, an MBA and an engineering degree, um, and he, was, he acquired a lot of wealth. He was a, a partner at Accenture. In fact, he was a partner over the partners. Um, and of the partners that I worked for, I, I, he was the most humble and the most confident in his own skin. He was never trying to out-jockey somebody else. That wasn't his motive. He never got, um, felt that you were threatening his leadership authority if you had to give him feedback. He, he still is confident in his own skin and always took an interest in me, including giving me tough feedback when I needed to hear it, always in a professional and honest and uh, caring way. Um, but he's the best leader I ever worked for. So it was very personal um, and I'll bet that each one of you, you, Meredith, I'm sure, and John, I'm sure, could each come up with somebody in your own life who was just different in, in the way that they carried themselves as a leader. And I'll bet, I'll bet 100 bucks to each one of you that, that humility had something to do with it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's always been that um, uh, combination of 
people that of leaders that are confident, and I always thought that they um, they weren't overly confident. But now that now that um, now that I've thought about it as, as I've gotten older, that their view and their vision of success is so much bigger than the personal, that they're able to be strong enough to lead you when you, when you need to be led, yet open to um, understanding when they need course correction or somebody's idea is better than theirs or praise needs to be given you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, someplace else. John, we probably only have about a minute or two before we head to break, and I'd love to get, I'd love to get a, um, an example of, of a leader we should, we should look up to from your perspective. I always thought one of the best guys uh, that I ever worked for and was associated with was uh, General uh, Stan McChrystal. Uh, even though he, he had his incident with Rolling Stone magazine, he was... Uh, what he did for the war efforts uh, and uh, retired as a four-star general. I got the I, I got the pleasure to work for him for a short amount of time. I thought he was the most self-disciplined and best leader that I probably worked for because he could make a decision. He was confident. He knew what he was doing. But he still cared about his people, and he took input from them. And uh, he was quick so, to praise, which is great. Yeah. So he was definitely approachable. Yes. They, he was, yes, at times, <laughs> not all the time, <laughs> but you could talk to him, offer your suggestions, and then he would take it on board. But he was open to you, and, but he appreciated hard work. He had high expectations, and everybody knew that, but, uh, and, uh, but he appreciated your work, and it was, there was very few people in, in the world that I know that can walk into a room and make people comfortable and make them feel appreciated, and I thought he was one of the guys that could do that, and and really, when he when he talked to you and thank you, you, you felt like he he genuinely appreciated your efforts and what you did in whatever capacity you you served with him or for him, you know. And, and that's that's a rare a rare quality that a lot of a lot of people, a lot of leaders don't have. Do you think that? Um, do you think that that is something that? Um, well, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll hold out till we come back from um, break because when we come back from break, I, I want to I talk about the takeaways um, from, uh, from the book. What, if I am out there listening to this, what I need to do as a leader to really be more effective in my organization? Because what you've really done with the book, The Leadership Killer, is lay out the roadmap um, to, to leading organizations today and to leading people, whether they're baby boomer generation or millennials or, um, or, uh, or Gen Z. So I want to make sure that our listeners really walk away with, um, with an actual strategy and a path. So we'll be right back with our guests in just a few minutes. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you ready to learn the business strategies you need to succeed no matter what this economy does? Are you interested in learning how the top organizations and how successful leaders are making change work for their companies and using uncertainty as their greatest competitive advantage? Then join the thousands of business owners, sales professionals, and entrepreneurs who have found the answers. Business growth expert Meredith Elliott Powell, author of Thrive, 
Strategies for Success in Uncertainty offers powerful keynotes, workshops, and training courses for organizations and leaders of sales professionals looking to take their companies to the next level. Voted a top 15 business growth expert to watch and top 40 motivational speaker, Meredith coaches executives, trains next level leaders, and builds sales teams in our innovative three-step proven system to thrive in uncertainty. To learn more, go to valuespeaker.com. To speak with Meredith directly, book Meredith to speak and learn more about her training programs. That's valuespeaker.com. Visit today. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Ritas is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Thriving in Uncertainty. If you have a question or comment about our program, Meredith would love to hear from you. Her email address is M-E-R-E at ValueSpeaker.com. Again, that's M-E-R-E at ValueSpeaker.com. Now back to Thriving in Uncertainty. And again, welcome back to Thriving in Uncertainty, the radio program where we cover the ideas, share the strategies, and implement the powerful tips you need to ensure you succeed no matter what this economy does. So we are in the last segment talking to Bill Treasurer and uh, Captain John Havlick. And gentlemen, I want to get tactical at this point. I want to really talk about... um, Talk about some strategies and some tips you have um, about really keeping your leadership in perspective and um, and staying humble. Sure. Well, I, I'm glad um, that we're going to get tactical like that. A couple of things that, that I would like to sort of just offer up. The first is to, if you're an aspiring leader, before you move into a leadership role, ask yourself this important question. Why would anyone want to be led by me? What makes you think that you are somebody that wants to lead other than wants to? What makes you think you deserve to? It's a real privilege to be able to impact people through your leadership. So what makes you think that you've got what it takes to be a leader? That, that would be sort of one thing. The second thing I would say is have a set of core values. One of the, the cool things that of me getting to work with John and then me getting to meet a few other SEALs through John, three of them so far, uh, in addition to John, that they all the, the cool thing about the seals is those guys have a core that you you can joke around, you can have fun, and they they can have fun too. But there there are places that you cannot go, and there are principles that they will always uphold, and they're not there are lines that they will not cross. And when you learn that about a person, you can trust the integrity of that person. So if you're an aspiring leader, what is your core? What are your core values that you're going to uphold no matter what? Giant Leap's uh, core value is around courage. I think it's a, a core value worth having in the workplace because it counterbalances and counteracts fear, and you need to have a life of courage if you want to be thriving in any environment. Um, so that's you know a core value that I hold dear. But have a core value system and ask yourself, what will I always stand up for and what will I always stand against 
and define your core values. It's a good, you ought to start with that bedrock if you're a leader. I, I love that. Um, John, I was tipped off to ask you about, um, and I hope that I, hope that I say this um, uh, right, but what is walking the deck plate? Oh, well, the deck plate is uh, kind of a term used in the Navy to uh, the deck of the ship, you know. And so uh, when you're on the deck plates, you're down with the sailors, you're down with the troops, you know, and, and they're doing the hard work, the daily work. Uh, that you as a leader tell them to do. And so what I did, uh, what I learned uh, in one of my first leadership jobs was uh, to, uh, I had to push away from my desk. You know, it's, I, I kept hearing uh, leadership didn't know what was going on around this command. And, and I was part of the leadership group, and I was like, well, I, I know what's going on, but evidently people don't think I do. So I... Uh, I had to take the time, which is hard because everybody's busy, especially as your leader, to push away from my desk, leave my cell phone, and just go down and, and walk, walk the deck place, talk to my troops, talk to my sailors, learn about them, uh, learn their first names, where they're from, their families, everything. And these were really important overseas. I had two overseas assignments that were very important, and, and uh Working overseas is hard, and it's just different than working in the States. And, and there's a lot of issues that come that you don't always hear about. So when you get the opportunity for the troops to vent, kind of tell them, or at least, you know, show them that you're interested and care about them, they, they seem to open up and they seem to do uh, the work a lot better, and, uh, and they're happier about it. So, and it gives you opportunity to explain, you know, what, at least for me, you know, what the command was doing and, why we were doing certain things and uh, offer them the opportunity to, you know, say, I'm not sure it'll work or, okay, I, now I understand. Now I know why we're doing this. Totally got it, you know, and, and it makes it just makes them feel as they're part of the organization and towards mission accomplishment. And I thought that was probably the best thing that I did. Um, and that, so that's kind of defines the term of walking to the deck plates, get out of your office, get down to where it's down in the dirt, and get dirty with your people and, and learn about them and talk to them and uh, get them on board. I, I think that is, yeah, I think that is so um, key. You know, years ago, and as I work with leaders now, the ones who are in touch that really um, spend time having a conversation, if they work for a large organization, they skip over some of their middle managers and actually go down and have, um, you know, have a conversation with some of their frontline um Personnel, or if you work in a small organization, maybe you just walk up front and run the cash register, go on a sales call now and then. It just creates such a different perspective for you, but also really such a different relationship. And Bill, I guess that's what you were talking about with knowing your core. I want to talk about that a little bit more. I mean, once I know my core, I understand my values, what do I do with that? Well, that, you know, then you've got to live out of that value system for one, and uh, and I was this is one of those <laughs> where you can invite a person to call you when you live outside of the values. You know, it, when I said before that a leader's got to be able to withstand some degree of pushback, make people aware of what your core values are. And by the way, if you're a leader, you ought to make sure your organization has a set of core values as well. It, it, and if you're leading uh, the department or you're leading a team, make sure that they're aware of what the organization's core values are to see and make sure that each individual 
is congruent with those core values of the organization. So, so you've got to lead out of your own personal core values. That's where your integrity is. Make people aware of what your core values are. But you also got to be leading towards core values in an organization and be really aware of what those are and embody them and uphold them every single day. I think, I think the core values, I mean, the, your, the leader's core values, they write the policy, they define the business what, and how it's going to work, and I think that's where Hubert's attacks, you know, that's where, if it, it attacks the core values of the leader and the leader doesn't follow them, then it's disorganized or the organization will, will uh, just go away and uh, be ineffective and go bankrupt. Mm. You know, it, it's sad that uh, a lot of times, Meredith, when we do workshops around culture, for example, we'll include a segment on core values and we'll include some examples of companies with really great core values and that, that seem to live those core values. Um, but the last slide we show them has a, a nice set of core values, pretty well written, and we'll ask people to guess, whose is this? And uh, nobody guesses, but they're Enrons. So, you know, even Enron had core values. It's living the core values that makes all of the difference. And I think that you can institutionalize it in a good way. You know, you should weave the core values into your hiring question. You should, uh, questions when you're recruiting people. You should weave the core values into the evaluation system and fire people that aren't compatible with the core values. So they, you need to put teeth in core values in any organization. Um, so it's one thing to have them as a leader, but it's another thing to make sure the organization has them and apply them. So, so let me ask you this. Um, the, you know, having to live those core values, having to, to you know, I, I do these things. I, I, I buy into these ideas. I understand my core. I walk the deck. I do these things. What, what difference, what, what ROI, what results, what bottom line changes do you see for me? I guess I'm asking is what is the, what is the listener's motivation to take the ball um, and, and run with your strategies on leadership? Well, I'll give you two as it relates to core values uh, right from the get-go. The first is it connects to your work, this idea of uncertainty. You know, all of this, changes are happening all the time from an innovation and product standpoint. Um, Changes are happening in the regulatory markets all the time. The thing about core values is they don't change. Right, like the the principle or the virtue of courage, for example, that's that's an anchor you can hold on to. You can trust that that thing's going to work for you. So core values are things that are unchanging, provide certainty in changing and uncertain times. The the second value of core values is that they help guide your decision making. So if you say that you know uh, people are our greatest resources, well then how are you going to back that up? You got to back that up by training and development, investing in development, um, you know, hiring the right people. If training are true, if people are truly your greatest assets, what are you going to do about it? So core values should help guide decision-making, should guide investment, uh, and the ROI on that is sustainability and security for your organization. Especially in changing times, it provides a degree of certainty in uncertainty. I, I love that. This is this has just been an, an amazing conversation, and I feel like we have just scratched um, uh, uh, the surface. I am so passionate about 
really in a, in a time when there is so little we can control. How we lead, and we certainly have countless examples of it in history, that the more effective we are as leaders, the more opportunity we have to navigate successfully this uncertainty. But I want to find out from each of you how we can find out more about you and your one closing tip for, um, for this audience. John, why don't we start with you? Well, Meredith, you can learn more about me. Uh, well, you learn more about the book at leadershipkiller.com. And uh, about me, you can go to coachhavlik.com. That's H-A-V as in Victor, L-I-K.com, and, or at Coach Havlick on Twitter. And I think the big thing that I'd like to leave you with is something that uh, the SEALs we learned uh, were emphasized every day, and that's part of our core values is to, uh, we call it to uh, earn earn your trident every day. And, and the trident is the uh, emblem, the chest pin that you wear and you earn after you go through SEAL training. And uh, you wear it proudly throughout your career. And uh, it, it's just a standard. It's, it's hard to get, and not many people get it. But once you get it, there's a, a set of standards that you have to, that the expectation is you perform every day. And, uh, you know, and as a leader, it just means that you've you got to accept all the, the good and the bad that comes with being, being in a leadership role and then try to make the best of it and do what's right. And so that's, that's the best thing I can do. And the, and that, and the best thing piece of advice is you gotta you gotta earn your try and you gotta earn your leadership whatever position you're in every day. All right, Great. Bill. Yeah, so they can get in touch with me at BillTreasurer.com or CourageBuilding.com. And as John said, the book's at LeadershipKiller.com. The uh, the tip that I'd leave you with is, is a quick story that uh, I have a, a son. He's I've got two sons and a daughter, but my youngest son came home from school when he was about five and he had gotten to be the class leader for the day and uh, my wife said you know hey make a big deal of this I'm like well yeah I write leadership books I'm gonna make a big deal of it hey hey, Ian come here buddy what did you get to do as class leader I didn't really know what he was going to answer uh, but he looked at me and shook his head yes full of excitement and he said I got to open doors for people and and I was like wow I didn't expect to hear that it was it was beautiful and to me, it's centrally really what leadership is all about. Like if you cut right through the chase of everything else about leadership, leadership is about opening doors for others. It's about creating opportunities that will better the lives and conditions of the people that you are leading. So if you stay focused on keep doing the next right thing, earn your trident every day for the good of others, then you will do a great job of leading. Perfect, Bill. I want to thank both you and John so much and encourage our listeners to get in touch. Join us next week for another exciting show, Thriving in Uncertainty, the show that delivers the strategies you need to turn uncertainty into your greatest competitive advantage. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Thriving in Uncertainty. Please join your host, Meredith Elliott Powell, for another program next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This week, embrace the change in your business and yourself. <laughs>